Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Rask Invest members receive Owen's official investment ideas, research on budgets, banking, super and insurance, plus how-to guides to get started. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Ben McGarry is the founder of Totus Capital. The Latin word for Totus means absolute. It's a fitting name because Ben is now one of Australia's leading hedge fund managers, having been thrust into the spotlight following a number of high-profile sell-offs and corporate collapses, such as ABC Learning. Upon graduating from the University of Queensland with a commerce degree, Ben went to work at a large accounting firm to master his technical skills before moving to London to start investing. 
In this episode, Ben talks about the experiences that shaped his investment philosophy before going into detail on the key things he looks for when short selling Aussie companies. Ben and I talk at length about business, big economic issues, some infamous corporate events, and the success of Totus to date. Given the nature of this conversation, if you're new to the world of hedge funds, it may be worth stopping by the Rask Finance website where we've created a free short video course addressing some of the concepts discussed in this episode. This is a rare chance to learn from one of the sharpest thinkers in the game, so I trust you'll enjoy this conversation with Ben McGarry of Totus Capital. Let's just start off, Ben, by saying um, welcome to the show. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for having me. Uh, from the outside, it, uh, it seems to me that you um, have had some great experiences early in life, some really good jobs, and then progressing up to starting your own business. But even before you started Totus Capital and how successful it has been now, there's some great nuggets and, and, and pearls of wisdom that we can draw out from those experiences. So I'm going to start where we always start and ask you to cast your mind back to when you were younger. I suppose, when did you buy your first share or when did you... When did that spark go off and you think, okay, finance is for me? That's a good question, Owen. Uh, I grew up in Brisbane where I suppose funds management and the financial services industry wasn't um, as big as it is in in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, uh, My father was in small business and uh, some of his close friends had had done well in small business. So I was Mm. interested in, you know, how people did well and why they they did well. And investing and owning shares seemed um, um, a good way of learning uh, about you know which businesses were good, um, bad, and, and indifferent, and I was I was very interested in um, investing. I suppose from the, about university time, where I studied commerce and economics mm. at the University of Queensland, and bought my first shares. You know, with savings from working at, uh, as a pizza delivery driver <laughs> for for Domino's, a company we still look at um, <laughs> all these years later. Um, and and started investing alongside my my dad as a sort of hobby. Uh, Dad's a keen golfer. Uh, nice. I'm not much good at golf, mm-hmm. and it was something we could do together. Uh, so that that was where I started investing. Do you remember the first share you bought? I do. It was a uh, a gold share called uh, uh, Carpenter Pacific, which was mm-hmm. um, exploring for uh, for gold in Papua New Guinea and. Uh, my girlfriend's brother and a few close friends were uh, excited about this and researched the hell out of it. And it, it might be one of the reasons why we steer clear of gold stocks <laughs> <laughs> still to this day. I, I've managed to um, avoid making a profit on gold shares uh, you know, for my whole career and we've just basically cut them out of our <laughs> process completely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was the first share. Yeah, it seems to be a bit of a binary outcome when you, when you make that first investment, either you get lucky and you get super overconfident or it goes the other way so what kept you going um look i I suppose yeah it was interesting that you know the concept of um you know when when things work you could you could certainly earn money a lot quicker than you could working um close to the minimum wage um you know on an hourly rate as i was at uni um Mm. um, i I always found uh, from the study side of things i like the um economics part of university and how markets worked and how business worked um, and so uh, the share market was a logical extension of that and Mm -hmm. and I kept at it. Um, I got a job with Pricewaterhouse um, as it was back then in 97 in Brisbane uh, which was a really good training ground in how sort of accounts are put together, Mm -hmm. um, the inner mechanics of um, you know the finance function of, of, of a range of different businesses. I looked at you know timber wholesalers and um, childcare operators and some financial services business 
is and um, it was a good grounding but it was a terrible place to try and um, you know continue my hobby which was investing uh, because of the conflicts that, that you had as mm. a chartered accountant uh, in an organization like Pricewaterhouse that had clients in all sorts of different industries there wasn't too many things that you could uh, you're able to invest in so when I qualified as a chartered accountant in 99 um, I decided it was time to you know make a move to to the research side of the stockbroking industry and I, I moved over to London and got a job with Morgan Stanley. Wonderful. And how did you find that experience? Did you also go over there? Did you want to be more worldly? Or Well, it was, it was one of those things that seemed to be just what everybody did in Brisbane. Um, <laughs> you know, there were, there, I, I had a bunch of mates over there at the time and I was lucky enough to find um, a, an Aussie a few years ahead of me at Morgan Stanley who saw a sort of glimmer of um, intelligence or optimism or hope or I, I'm not sure what he saw, but he offered me a, a, a contract role at Morgan Stanley which turned into an analyst job which turned, you know, which, which I stuck with for four years through what was uh, the tech wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, I joined in late 1999 and... It was a, a real eye-opener in, you know, I suppose exuberance and, you know, what can go right in an industry but what can go wrong. And I realised that, you know, the, the investment industry is, is highly cyclical mm. um, and that, you know, that was one of the reasons that um, I've gravitated towards long-short investing over the years is that being able to protect capital in environments like that, you know, a tech bust, or we do have bear markets from time to time and it's been a long time since we've had one, mm. uh, but working in a part of the industry that was able to thrive regardless of what was going on in markets was going to be a much steadier way to sort of run a career without these gaps every decade or so as you lost a job because you know markets turned down Mm. and it just didn't seem like a very good way to try and run a career or raise a family or pay a mortgage Uh, so uh, yeah that was a a pretty good learning experience yeah were you shorting I mean I bet it would have been were you shorting at this stage no I was uh, I was doing um, industrial sell side equity research in um, building materials and construction stocks in Europe so um, it was basically long only investing but uh, or, or providing research to long-only investors but they were highly cyclical industries so um, you know it was a pretty good background or or training in in, um, industrials research which was prices volumes currencies um, and with my sort of accounting bottom-up background and economic studies at uni you know clicked with me Mm. and um, I managed to survive there um, until it was time to come back to Australia in uh, the early 2000s where I got a job with UBS and moved across to doing emerging companies yeah, research, nice. which is a really good broad grounding or, or in in research in all sorts of different companies. And most of our team at, at TOTUS, or the three of us on the research side, have all come out of small company or emerging mm-hmm. company research because you're looking at companies from different industries with different drivers all the time and, and it helps, you know, it's a really good place to um, learn how to weed the good from the bad. Yeah, and really develop those skills as a as a fundamental analyst and, and, yeah. and in, a, I suppose, the high-risk, quotation marks, environment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think um, risk capital um, or, or emerging companies do attract risk capital, so there's a lot of mm. um, concepts that, that come up and the market gets excited about. And over the years, you know, I've been doing emerging companies since 2004. You know, you see a lot of things that the market gets excited about that don't work. And... Mm. Um, and uh, you, you, you tend to start asking questions like, you know, if this business is being listed for the first time, why hasn't it been listed anywhere mm-hmm. successfully? And, you know, things that you, you can see 
have, that have worked well in other listed environments are much lower risk bet than new, new things that you, that you, where you're having to pick the, the next mm-hmm. um, winner. So, yeah, I've seen a lot of, you know, high hopes being dashed in the emerging company space. And, and you know, that was another reason um, that long, short investing appealed to me because it was, we could make use of time that was spent on those low quality companies um, and not mm. just, um, you know, the, the good companies, which are, which are hard to find sometimes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it was about this time or the end of, towards the end of your career, your time at UBS, um, you wrote a note on a childcare operator. Can you tell us about the note and the company bar? behind that note? Oh, yeah. So ABC Learning was the, the company. That was the first stock I, w- I was given to cover at UBS as an emerging companies <laughs> analyst. And, um, you know, I, I looked up the note the other day and I, it, it, it certainly, um, we, we've come a long way and learned a, a lot <laughs> since that note was written. But it did sort of highlight that there was a lot of complexity in the business model of ABC Learning. They had, uh, they were using some, um, some structures to put out assets and uh, some of their operating expenses were uh, with related parties. They spun out the bricks and mortar assets in the business into a property trust. And the narrative that they told the market was that, that was that this was to improve their returns profile. But mm-hmm. when we actually looked at the numbers, the returns profile was um, was deteriorating dramatically, despite supposedly spinning out the low quality assets. Um, and and it was just looking at a mismatch between what the numbers were, were telling us and what the narrative in the market was and asking some basic questions about, you know, why that was and following the, I suppose, the threads until you had the picture. And the picture, once you followed those threads, didn't look that, that great and the note got a bit of attention from um, holders of the stock and also some um, some hedge funds and, and eventually that, that worked got me a job on the buyer side at Ausbill Dexia, uh, who was a, an investor in ABC Learning at the time. And did they, uh, did they sell out? Eventually they yeah. did. They, they didn't um, take my word for it, um, <laughs> the, um, based on the work I'd done on the sell side, but one of the, the good things about being a shareholder is that you, you, know, you do tend to get very good access to management. You, you can also um, test, uh, you get access to um, all of the the sell side research, the people that really love the stock, the people that really hate the stock, and it was a pretty simple exercise to, um, you know, compare those those views mm. and, and work out which were the stronger views. And that's something we try and always do, you know, to this day is look at what the competing view is or the alternate view is to what we're doing, and see, you know, if we can't refute you know, the, the alternate view, maybe we've got to do a bit more work on our thesis on whether the stocks are long or, or, or are short. So, look, after getting all of that research together, spending a bunch of time with management, going across to the US and looking at the centres that they'd bought, um, spending some time with Eddie Gross, you know, I came back and, and, and pitched to the investment committee that we should definitely be selling. But the thing that actually got, uh, I think, the, the, the sell picture across the line was looking at what the company had promised to do in terms of earnings in 2007, three or four years before, and their EPS was miles apart mm. from what they actually they delivered all those years later. And I think that was enough to get the portfolio managers to sell. So they sold 28 million shares at $7.35 and it went bust about nine or 10 months later. Wow. Uh, so at this point, still no shorting? No, but it did. I mean, the ABC learning really opened my eyes to, mm. you know, the opportunity of alpha generation in these under-researched or poorly researched mid-cap companies and then 
um, a lot of the companies that I covered when I worked at UBS um, were the kind of companies that were needed money to um, to grow and so that was why they were listed and the investment banks loved covering those kind of companies because they paid fees to raise capital mm. and when the financial crisis came along in 2008, uh, so I, I moved to the buy side in 2007, a lot of those companies that were heavily reliant on external funding uh, performed really poorly through that um, when markets dislocated, um, mm. people couldn't raise money. Companies like Trans-Pacific, um, Alesco, Osenko uh, fell out of bed and, and had dramatic share price declines. So we still look in the book for shorts that are heavily reliant on external funding or capital to survive. And um, that's one of the main reasons that we're short Tesla, which is our biggest short mm. in the book at the moment. Okay, we'll get to that in just a moment in more of your investment philosophy. But let's fast forward a bit from ABC. You decide to launch TOTUS in 2012. I'm curious to know, it seemed like everything was going pretty well for you from a career point of view. What made you think, you know, I'm doing pretty well here, but I'm, I'm going to go and start my own thing? Probably, oh, and as we talked about before, uh, the interview is perhaps a little bit of ignorance. <laughs> uh, it was a blessing uh, back then. But look, I, I'd always wanted to, to manage a portfolio. I was an assistant portfolio manager at, at Matthews Capital, was a sector analyst at um, Ausbill. So I'd never had the opportunity to really put my ideas to work. And I had, I felt like I had real value add through the financial crisis in terms of some of these businesses that fell apart, the Babcocks and Browns, etc. that mm. I, I wasn't able to really capitalise on for clients. So after years of, you know, investing and saving, I, I, I had my mortgage paid and a little bit of capital left over, uh, which I thought was enough buffer to perhaps start open the doors and if the numbers were good enough I would hopefully be able to find some like-minded investors and if everything went brilliantly in a few years maybe there was enough to to have a, a living and a career out mm. of it so um, I probably um, yeah didn't anticipate quite quite how difficult it would, it would be or how long it would take uh, but we were lucky enough to have a few good years uh, we've only had one down year in I suppose they're almost seven since we we launched, so that that's helped. Mm. And then uh, over the years, we've been able to, you know, attract some really great people to work at Totus, which is really making things a hell of a lot easier these days than it was back then. Mm. How old were you when you decided to launch it? Uh, good question. I must have been 36. I think it took me a year. Uh, 37 mm. um, was when I launched. Yeah, it was almost a year of licensing and trying to round up those initial investors. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, you know, if I had a dollar for everybody that said they'd give me some money, we would have started with a fair bit more than we <laughs> we actually started with. I think we had $300,000 day one, a million at the end of the first month. And then we had a good first three months and got to five million. And that pretty much exhausted my sort of friends and family refidex. And, and we really had to grind it out with the returns from there. So, um, yeah, so I'm uh, just about to turn 44. We'll have a seven-year track record um, early next year. So hopefully there's some good runway there, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, portfolio manager, mm -hmm. golden year still ahead of us, I hope. Yeah, for sure. That's, uh, that's wonderful. And you, you, so you paid, you paid down the mortgage, you think, okay, let's do it. Um, a lot of people, I think, from the outside underestimate just how much it costs to start, a re uh, not even a retail fund, just any fund in general. Um, so it is, even though you say a million dollars or $5 million, it does take a lot of work to, to grind that out, as you say. And 
you know, eventually with your performance, you know, it was bound to catch on, but it wouldn't have been easy. It would have been a few inward-looking moments in those first few years. Yeah, I mean, in terms of by the time I think the cash stopped going out, the mortgage was back to, you know, half, I had a half a 50% LVR on my house. Um, by the time we got to the, you know, the point where the checks to lawyers and um, service providers were uh, balanced out, by um, management and performance fees. Then for the first few years, really, it was only the performance fee. The the management fee really was a rounding error. And every time we got to a point where the management fee was uh, sufficient, we hired another person. So (laughs) Sam Granger joined when the fund was 13 million. He effectively got my my salary. (laughs) And it's been pretty much the same uh, ever since. So we've, um, you know, the positive is that we've invested and and got a really good Mm. team around us now. Yeah, indeed you do. So let's talk about the strategy a bit. The high level tagline is it's low beta, it's uh, long short. Uh, can you explain the investment process for listeners and perhaps let's start with the, the size of the universe and how you filter that down to some okay. investment ideas and position sizing? We're equity investors. Our universe is Australia and developed markets, but primarily the US is the offshore market that we invest in outside of Australia. Mm-hmm. We use themes to filter that what very big investable universe down to a, a researchable opportunity set. So we're looking for um, events or trends um, or, um, yeah, events or trends or buckets of alpha that are uncorrelated that would provide a place to um, spend some time researching. And the few that have been really good for the fund since we launched, were, you know, the, the big one has been the internet taking share off traditional bricks and mortar mm-hmm. businesses. Now, these aren't, we didn't invent that theme. It was well established when we launched. We've just been um, good at identifying winners and losers from that theme, whether they've been based here or offshore. So that led us to, you know, investments in companies like um, Alphabet early in the, or what Google as it was called back then, early in the fund's life. Mm. We've done well out of other tech stocks like Amazon, Apple, um, because of that theme. But there's been others um, on the short side, like the commodity price deflation theme was very strong and prevalent in the portfolio for the first four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we do once we've identified a theme is go and look for the companies that have the, the best and concentrated, most concentrated exposure to those themes. And then we, we start with um, a basket of those stocks and then we use our bottom-up analytical skills to high grade the portfolio or Sam and Cam will say, look, we've got these eight stocks exposed to um, the Royal Commission fallout. Um, I think we should be looking at stock 9, 10 and 11 for these reasons. And if they turn out to be, after our research, better exposures um, to you know the winners and losers of something like the Royal Commission or a slowdown in East Coast housing, they go into the portfolio and something, you know, a weaker exposure gets kicked out. And so it's a constant um, active management of um, a group of stocks exposed to either tailwinds for longs or sh- or headwinds for shorts. Um, that's the basic process. Mm. One of the trends, there's you gave that great tagline, which is um, bricks to clicks for some of those larger online plays, but another one which polarises people is the East Coast housing. How are you... And Totus, how, how, how have you positioned yourself for that? Yeah, we've probably been early and we were often early. We were early on, you know, things like, um, you know, Blue Sky took a long time to play out. Quintus took a long time to play out. East Coast housing has been something that's been a bit of a graveyard for long mm. short funds. Um, they've, you know, a lot of offshore funds have tried to short the Aussie housing market 
in various ways and um, I've usually um, you know not made any money or, or, or actually lost money and but we think that you know we're, we're getting to the point here where there's a confluence of factors um, that you know we, we've got declining house prices in in Sydney and a number of parts of Australia at the moment the way we've been playing it is through um, retail building materials and, and banking stocks basically uh, the reporting season that just passed in August um, wasn't as bad as we had feared um, but since August, we've seen a continuing decline or steady decline in house prices. Mm. Um, no real pickup in auction clearance rates as we head into spring. Uh, we've got you know an election uh, coming up in the new year and a potential change of government. So there's nothing really on the horizon that looks like it's going to stop that steady downward trend. The Royal Commission has been a very big impact on um, you know the availability of credit, which is going to feed through to housing. So look. Uh, we, we went into the reporting season in August with a relatively, um, I suppose, with, with a position short in all of those sectors. The results weren't as bad as we feared, so we covered some of those and we're looking at adding those back as these headwinds are intensifying over mm. the next few months. So, um, yeah, those are the three main ways to, that we're playing it. In, I'm interested to know, um, before we get into more of the conversation on shorting, what, in your early days, how were you shorting? What what um, instruments were you using to short? Uh, it's always been, we've been lucky that we had a prime broker that backed okay. us, um, you know, early. Um, the, the agreement was that we would get to 10 million pretty quickly and break even, and it took us a little longer. So I was grateful to Merrill Lynch for taking us on <laughs> as, a, uh, as a very small fund when we started. Um, and, and we were able to to get single stock borrow on a very good range of companies through them from the early days. We now have um, two prime brokers which which um, increase our access mm. to um, single stock lending and we haven't had uh, any real issues of, of getting stock in companies that, that we uh, like on the short side um, of late. So as we get bigger, that, that may become an issue. The one that, um, you know, we would have shorted more if we could have got it was was blue sky but mm. but that was fully lent pretty quickly after the the glaucus report came out but yeah we we've got pretty good access to um, stocks um, anything below 100 million market cap is is a bit too difficult for mm. us um, these days and it's never really been a big part of um, of our fund uh, we've really always valued liquidity mm. um, very highly Nothing, everything that is in the fund is listed and liquid and priced every day. Yeah, there's one video that I saw of yours. Um, I think you may have done it recently. You talked about the uh, the three sins of investing, one being gearing at a net level, excessive concentration, and illiquidity. Yeah. Why are those three the three sins in your mind? Uh, look, I've um, been around markets a, a while, and I've seen firsthand a few funds that have got into trouble with um, with gearing. Um, Liquidity, you know, is a is a fluid concept, um, but you know, stocks that look quite liquid when you get in, or when you're a, a small fund, as you get bigger, um, or if the markets dislocate, they get a lot harder to get out of. And concentration um, works works well, but can be you know very damaging if you if you get it get it wrong. So we we've deliberately kept the portfolio diversified, ungeared at a net level, and valued liquidity very highly. So we have no more than 5% of the portfolio in stocks under 100 million market cap at any one time. And um, the, the, the real thing that was the killer on liquidity was seeing uh, funds that had taken 
pre-IPO or unlisted investments uh, that were small and but then ran into performance issues or the market had a drawdown they had redemptions and those small positions became bigger in, in their funds and became uh, very difficult to price and eventually ended up having to be distributed to unit holders uh, so mm. if god forbid it, we ever had a, a terrible period in at totus and the investors all left the person that's left with those dud investments at the bottom of the portfolio is me. Uh, I'm the second largest unit holder in the fund, so I'm very careful about keeping, you know, the the bottom of the portfolio as clean as possible, with um, no <laughs> illiquid names that we're going to get stuck in for the long term. Yeah, absolutely, and um, that's an interesting point you make that you are one of the biggest investors in your own fund. Would you ever invest with someone who wasn't? A substantial investor in their own fund? I wouldn't personally. Yeah, I think it's very, um, there's a difference, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, boutiques have tended to outperform, you know, large institutional funds is that is that skin in the game and the nine to five sort mm. of, I'm not saying that managers at large funds work nine to five, but there is a huge amount of alignment and incentive mm. in um, a boutique fund not just in terms of the fee structure, but also in terms of, you know, the survival. Like, you really don't, um, you don't have 20 or 30 other funds that can carry you through a period mm-hmm. of underperformance that are going to, you know, pay the bonus and get the kids through school. Uh, you really have to make sure every year is the best year you can possibly make it. So, yeah, um, you can, there's been a, a number of really good launches of small uh, funds, but all of them have had, that have done well that I, that I know of have had, you know, the managers as the initial, you know, mm. largest investor or close to it, and they've kept plenty of skin in the game. Yeah. It's, um, I suppose, not only is it born out in your own business, but it's born out in the way you invest when you seek alignment with management, so CEOs and executives of the companies that you, you're targeting. Um, one thing I noticed looking through a lot of the material is your very sharp focus for, for quality. And I, I don't know if that's part uh, of your experience um, as a chartered accountant, but... Perhaps you can explain some of the, the factors that you look for when you're assessing quality. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the the starting point and the you know the source documents for us are, are really financial statements, and um, by quality we're talking about um, that there the accounting laws allow you to present your your the business um, results. Mm. In a number of ways, there is some discretion around the way that you can expense or capitalise costs. So run costs through the profit and loss statement, which impacts your earnings and price to earnings ratio, or if you can run them through the balance sheet, which potentially doesn't impact your earnings. We would we would consider running costs through the balance sheet more aggressive than running costs through the profit and loss. Mm. There's a bunch of other ways that you can you know fudge your earnings using perhaps acquisition accounting. Um, changes in useful life or depreciation mm-hmm. lives so we just look at all of those little factors and try to look at if we, we were looking at two companies in the same industry we would tend to favor the one that has got the clean accounting the more conservative accounting treatment where cash flows tend to match up with EBITDA for example um, where you know one of the key things that got me thinking about ABC at ABC Learning was that the net debt was always higher than it should have been. So just doing simple mm. sanity checks of we know whether the cash less the debt was at 30 June and 31 December, where is it when they've done a deal mid-month, you know, does that make sense? There should have been some operating cash flow generated or, or a very simple piece of analysis that we do again and again and again is 
looking at what is the organic growth rate uh, of a business once you strip out acquisitions and that worked really well in a company like BWX this year which mm. which has seen you know a private equity suitor walk away uh, they made a number of acquisitions and we suspected it was because the core business growth wasn't as rosy as what the market mm. was pricing in and when we did that analysis of stripping out you know the impact of the acquisitions it, it looked like the core business wasn't growing or was even going backwards so so looking at those kind of just pulling apart financial statements and and seeing does the underlying uh, business you know is it being presented in an aggressive fashion or a conservative fashion and one of the only reasons management would use aggressive accounting to present their accounts is probably because the business is not growing as quickly as it used to or there's some un problem with the underlying business so it's a really good lead mm. into what's actually going on um, on the ground um, that's our, our starting point but we do use lots of other things like competitor meetings um, you know industry uh, research um, you know we, we look at research from our competitors from the sell side from um, independent uh, research providers you know anything we can get that can give us an insight into what's going on in mm. a business how about um, on management specifically um, they're buying they're selling the skin in the game alignment how, how big of a part does that play? Look, uh, we, we don't sort of score it, uh, but, but it certainly factors into our, our thinking. I mean, Smart Group's been our, our biggest holding in the fund for a number of years now. Mm -hmm. We've actually not seen any insider selling in that company since we've owned it, uh, which is highly unusual. There's been buying from not just management, but also board level. And, um, you know, we love when companies um, and management teams are aligning themselves with their investors. Um, you know, a lot of the businesses that we own have owner-driver-like characteristics and um, uh, are taking a, a not just short-term view of, of, you know, a CEO life cycle. So mm. we own a heap of businesses like Flight Centre, Beacon Lighting, uh, even things like Amazon and Facebook, where you've got founders, um, founding families or um, CEOs who still have significant stakes in the business and are running those businesses for the long, long term rather than for the, for the next earnings result or to um, get a CEO through a two or three year vesting period for, you know, for, their, for their compensation. Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly one that um, I think most investors need to pay attention to is that alignment and uh, just having a quick read through you can just even look at how many shares the CEO owns in the own co their own company at, uh, and then follow on from there. Um, well, insider selling Owen sorry I should yeah. have finished up insider selling is a big red flag to us and uh, yeah. uh, obviously people you know from, uh, at times in their life have to diversify but we see consistent insider selling uh, in size in businesses that have aggressive accounting uh, that are expensive that are facing headwinds that mm. is um, too many red flags yeah that that certainly uh, per perks our interest on the short side yeah um, you mentioned blue sky earlier on I'm interested to know how that position came about um, some things happening beneath the surface perhaps with valuation of assets and what yeah. you looked at look um, we actually there's a few reasons uh, we started looking at it. We, we, we've been cautious on markets for, for some time. We think markets are relatively expensive. Fund managers were beneficiaries of um, money printing and, and rising markets. They've had good asset growth. Um, they've earned performance fees. And Blue Sky stuck out to us as a very you know expensive fund manager based on you know just just a basic screen of, of fund managers in the Aussie market and looking at things like price to earnings ratio or percent market cap as a percentage of assets under management. 
And then we started digging into it um, a little more and um, it had a lot of exposure to uh, multi-res apartments in Brisbane, which to you know anybody that's been to Brisbane in the last three or four years would realise there's been a hell of a lot of apartments built up there. It seemed like a very crowded market. Their returns were, you know, very good. That's not It's not easy to punch out 15% returns year after year, but they were doing it across 80 asset classes. So mm-hmm. that, to us, um, was enough to do some more work. And then we're in the business of funds management. We know how these businesses work. If you're performing well and raising money, you're generally not going to be reliant on external capital to grow. Mm-hmm. To grow. These businesses have fixed costs, and um, they, they tend to spit out cash if you if you yeah, do your job. Scale, yeah. um, Blue Sky was in the market raising money every nine or twelve months, um, so so that was a red flag to us to start doing some more work. We were you know a long time uh, you know ahead of Glaucus, uh, and um, you know it cost us a fair bit of performance in 2017. But some you know a lot of those uh, things that looked odd to us. You know, have in hindsight played out you know, this year. Mm. It's interesting you raised uh, Glaucus, the notable short seller. Interesting. I'm interested. Can, can you touch on um, your thought? I'm interested to hear your thoughts about reports and, and short seller reports that are put out in Australia, and if you think that they play a role, uh, or they yeah, should play a role. Uh, obviously, I'm you know completely biased as a you know we're. We're we're long investors, but we but we we do a lot of shorting. Yeah. Um, I I I just I'm about fairness, and I think that if if somebody is allowed to have a positive opinion on a company, they should be allowed to have another person should be allowed to have a negative opinion on the company. And and you tend to find that the good companies don't tend to worry too much about negative opinions. Mm. Uh, they tend to get on with their business. And if a short seller gets something wrong, um, you know, we saw a report go, come out this year on, on Credit Corp, which um, was picked apart pretty quickly and dealt with harshly <laughs> by the market. The stock ripped um, and and the person, you know, who put out that report probably, you know, took a, took a pretty... Um, hefty loss I, I imagine so um, yeah I, I think certainly if people are spreading things that are unfalse or, uh, or untrue sorry or, or, or making things up about a company you know that there's probably you know that's unethical and there's probably a case to answer but uh, not everybody that likes a company that makes up things or, or talks about you know positives that never eventuate they, they don't get prosecuted so look yeah there's two sides of the story I just think if you could, you should treat long investing or, or um, negative reports on a company, mm. you know, the, the same way. Now, Australia's got the added complication that we've got some pretty, you know, strict defamation um, and libel laws, so it's difficult to put out activist reports mm. um, or negative reports on companies, uh, which is one of the reasons, you know, we we don't do it. But if somebody has put out a negative report that we agree with, there's nothing stopping us from saying that we agree with, you know, mm. their their analysis or conclusions mm-hmm. yep and if you just happen to be the beneficiary well our investors yeah i mean what we're trying to do is really protect our unit holders capital throughout the, the market cycle by owning high quality cash generative businesses and if we can find lower quality companies facing challenges to to balance out that book so um you know in months like like this where the market's down dramatically you know our, our fund is cruising along you know, quite yeah. nicely because of that buffer from the short so that's that's the reason we do it is to um, you know protect our investors capital mm. I did I read somewhere um, and correct me if I'm wrong 
something like the last 10 major market drawdowns, your fund actually outperformed eight, eight times or was positive? Right? Uh, yeah, we were positive in eight out of the 10. So, uh, so yeah, and this month it will be one of those 10 worst um, months since we launched six and a half years ago. Uh, market's tracking at the moment about minus five and we're at about minus one. So we're not positive this month, but um, it's certainly good outperformance. So it does tend to be these periods where volatility picks up that our fund can put on um, large gaps versus, you mm. know, an index. Um, not that we track it, you know, track the index, but many of our investors are equity investors, so they keep yep. an eye on the index. Um, we've still got a couple of weeks to go, though, this month, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But, yeah, this month isn't atypical. It's a pretty normal uh, month mm. based on how the fund's performed in uh, other periods of volatility. Yeah, yeah, great. Circling back to your experience quickly at um, Price Waterhouse. And as an, as a chartered accountant, do you think that shorting is a is a viable strategy for someone who perhaps doesn't have those skills? It's shorting is a difficult one um, in general. Like there's you, you really mm. the reason that we've been able to do it well is because we've got a really high quality book of long investments against it, and we're highly diversified. We have 120 stocks in the portfolio, mm. and the average position size of our shorts is pretty small a very very large short position for us would be five percent so mm. the average person doesn't have 120 stock portfolio there there is a lot of um it's the shorts need to be actively managed mm. um a company never goes from you know a hundred dollars to zero in a straight line it's a it's a journey and you're sort of on the bus for periods of the mm. journey rather than just going to sleep and, and waiting to get to the the end um because yeah, stocks will, will whip around um, companies like Quintus or GetSwift or Blue Sky or um, ABC Learning have many, you know, rallies and peaks and troughs before they go down. So our, our job is to try and look for um, catalysts that, and, and times where you would want to be short and for opportunities to take profits on shorts. Um, and that tends to smooth our returns um, for the overall fund and protect our fund um, during you know periods of market volatility, so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a unique skill set. There's mm. not many funds that do a lot of shorting that have good long term track records. So uh, the reason that we're quite focused on it at the moment is that we're ten years into a bull market. We've got a lot of expensive stocks. Mm. Uh, we've got some pretty obvious headwinds out there with trade wars, uh, rising interest rates, and we think that's a good time to be spending time on our short book. But there'll be periods when the market is a lot cheaper that that will have pens down on the shorts and be looking you know most of the time uh, for long opportunities so mm. at, at the moment we're still finding it a bit hard on the, on the long side in Australia in particular okay yeah you, yeah I mean as a short you need to be you need to be right on the company but also right with the timing right because it costs you um, I've looked at some of the recent uh, monthlies you've put out and one of the things that caught my eye was that um, you do have exposure to the mega caps in the US so Alphabet, you mentioned earlier on. Why do you, I suppose, why do you prefer to get that exposure to those large caps than here in Australia? Well, the it just happens that some of the strongest themes that we've identified, you know, have um, the companies that dominate those themes are based in are based in the US. Um, mm. uh, but 
The mega caps um, we like because there's a, a huge amount of publicly available data on them, so we're not disadvantaged by being a small fund, you know, based in Australia. Um, we, we've got just as much access to um, research on Google as Fidelity does, for mm. example. The other thing we like about mega caps in the US is that they have to report quarterly. It's interesting just talking to investors that a lot of investors don't seem to want to pay for those um, high market cap weights that they they think that they can pay it, uh, play it better through ETFs or low cost market exposure. And if we go a, a step below the, those mega cap names in say tech, and you look at the companies like Shopify, mm. Zillow, Salesforce, Workday, there's a whole series of companies trading on very high multiples of sales that look wildly you know, expensive to us and uh, we just haven't been able to justify getting them into the portfolio. But when we go to the mega cap end of the market, there seems to be some reasonable value on offer. So it just seems to be uh, an easily uh, an easy place to research some very strong companies that are, are trading at valuations that to us look quite attractive relative to our, our own market and even other segments in mm. the US market. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir on that one. Um, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, okay, so let's move on as we come to the end of the conversation. Uh, Totus Alpha Fund has been going extremely well uh, performance-wise, but also from a risk perspective, um, as we touched on. Are, are you more, I suppose, you, you've got both of them, but are you more proud of the the, the risk you're providing, the protection risk? Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of funds that have, you know, had, it, markets have gone up roughly 10% a year since we launched. We've done 21. But the the thing uh, yeah, I am proud about is how we've, we've done that with um, almost no correlation to the Aussie market. Um, mm. Look, we did have one tough year in 2016 where we had two, you know, meaningful drawdowns in the same year. I think we learned, you know, some, some pretty good lessons out of that. And we did have a strong run through 2017 and the start of 2018. And now we've hit some volatility in markets and our fund is holding up quite well. So I think some of the lessons that we learned of 20, out of 2016 in terms of reducing gross exposure after a very strong run of performance, um, lowering our net exposure into a rising market, having longs and shorts within the same themes rather than being all long or all short mm. within a theme, they've certainly helped uh, the portfolio perform this year perhaps better, you know, so perhaps we're learning a few things as we go. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so uh, the fund is set up so that sophisticated investors only. Uh, how big can it get? How big do you? Well, we're closing to new investors at $500 million, so we're at just over $200 million. Yeah. Uh, there's reasonable inflows at the moment. We're starting to get included on a, a number of approved product lists. Uh, you know, if all goes to plan in the next 18 months to two years, you know, we'll be closed to new investors. So uh, I think we're very lucky in that we're, um, you know, independent. Uh, we don't have a big brother that's forcing us to sort of grow uh, for growth's mm. sake. We're, we're not um, part owned by a listed company, for example. Uh, we've got a relatively small but experienced team. So if we can get to 500 million, continue to punch out anywhere near the numbers that we've done in the last six years, you know, it'll be a great outcome for our investors. And I'd much rather have conversations with investors about, you know, good performance than uh, tough conversations about poor performance having raised too much money. Mm. Yeah, great. So where do you see Totus in three to five years? Uh, hopefully, you know, uh, managing a, a sensible amount of money and, and punching out good returns and, you know, have, having fun with it uh, as a team and <laughs> um, I, I still you know really enjoy coming into work you know most days uh, nine out of ten days 
So, yeah, there's nothing else I really want to be doing for the next, you know, 15, 20 years. So it's really about just having a business that's able to, you know, I want to, I want to retain, you know, the great staff that I've got and, and have a business that's capable of attracting, you know, really top people to, to work with yeah. us. So, so that's it, trying to diversify our investor base, um, retain that staff and keep the numbers up. Where can people go to find out more about you, the strategy? Our website, Owen's got um, a fair bit of information. Um, there's a couple of podcasts like today. Uh, we mm-hmm. try to put that information out there. There is some um, third-party research um, on us, which if you contact us through our website at totuscapital.com.au, uh, we'll be happy to, to send to you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's probably the best place. Mm-hmm. Great. And uh, final question, it's also my favourite. If you go back in time and tell a younger you just one thing about money, finance or investing, what would it be? Uh, the, the key thing is taking a long-term view and, and starting. So they're the two, the two hardest things to do. So uh, best thing to do, you could do about investing or starting a business or getting fit or you know, cheering up is, is starting. And if you can just take a, a, a view that is slightly longer than you know, 6 to 12 to 18 months, which is most people's sort of time frame these days, uh, there's a hell of a lot you can achieve. Um, so taking that, say, five to seven-year view rather than the one to three-year view uh, can pay off massively. Wonderful advice. Ben, thanks for your time. Thanks, Owen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.